Welcome back to another episode of eSource Power Talking. I'm your host, Brian Jungers, Director of Mobility here at eSource. And just really quickly, I want to let you know that the annual eSource Forum is coming up next month, September 28th to October 1st. We'll be following state guidelines for the event to keep things as safe as possible. And you can attend this year in person or online. As always, eSource members can register for free. We cannot wait to see you next month. For today's episode, we have a bit of a different episode for you. I'm joined by Ted Schultz, the CEO of eSource, and Adam Maxwell, Managing Director of our consulting division. Our discussion is on ethnography versus data science. What's better for customer research? On the one hand, data science identifies your target individuals at a macro level, but ethnography humanizes those insights. Is one more useful than the other? Is a blend the best option? I talked with our experts to find out. So, uh, Ted, how does it feel to be newest eSource CEO? Hey, thanks, Brian. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, eSource is a, a great company. Uh, we're in a great spot in the industry, and I, I look forward to uh, working to take it to the next level. You know, for those who don't know me, maybe a little background. You know, I am one of those old utility guys, uh, so I've been around a really long time, like more than 35 years, and uh, started uh, in utilities and retired early from Duke Energy after uh, 27 years in the utility business, then jumped out, and I've been serving utilities since for the last 11 years. So really excited about where we're at and uh, look forward to working with the eSource team to make a big difference. Awesome. And we're also joined today by Adam Maxwell. Adam, how are things up there at 6,700 feet in uh, scenic Steamboat, Colorado, huh? Things are good. I uh, I got out this morning, kind of went up to some remote area, did some mountain biking. Uh, there's a little bit of a little bit of traffic and a lot of smoke from the wildfires too. Oh, a little congested, huh? A little bit. I'm sorry to hear that. What's going on in your world? What's going on in my world? Uh, we just started a new project around uh, solar engagement, which is pretty cool with a utility in the southeast. And so we're going to be talking to a whole variety of stakeholders about some of their proposed new solar rates that may be adjusting net metering. And so that'll be an interesting, you know, it's always an interesting and fascinating topic. And so it'll be, it'll be good to hear others' perspectives on that, you know, bring some disparate groups together to have kind of a mutual understanding of what they do and what their interests are and, and hopefully come to some good solutions. So I'm excited to kick that one off. Well, uh, somebody that's got solar and net metering, don't touch it, please. <laughs> done and done. I think that's uh, the common sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's one universal truth. It's that customers like low rates and love free energy. <laughs> <laughs> and also that many people that go solar still think they go off grid somehow magically. And uh, that's a challenging hill to climb when you come to sort of the education and awareness component of that. Absolutely. Yeah. The realities of power electronics are a little bit more complicated than that, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Topic of the day is humans versus machines. Who is going to win out in this epic battle? You know? <laughs> okay. It's time to get serious. We're going to play eSource Power Talking version of Two Truths and a Lie. I have three statements for you 
you get to decide which are the truths and which one is the lie. Okay. You ready for this? Ready. Yep. All right. Here goes. Statement number one. People and their behaviors are too complex to be fully described by a data set, no matter how large. Statement number two. Artificial intelligence or AI and machine learning are rapidly rendering analysts and consultants obsolete. Statement number three. Human-centered research and design practices serve as a valuable complement to a data-driven decision-making. Which one do you think is a lie? Very interesting. Uh, I'd have to go with number two. That would be my take as well. Uh, now, that, now that I have processed all three, all three options, <laughs> I think number two has to be a lie because I am a consultant and I like job security. So uh, there's no way that machines could replace us. Okay. You know, and, and utilities love consultants. So I just don't see them going away. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. You guys aced it. Nice job. So uh, let's get into the, the real topic of the day, which is data versus, you know, human elements, the, the quant versus the qual. Ted, can you just tell us you know, why is data important? Why are you interested in data science? Why have you been working in this for so long? Why is it worth all, all the effort? Yeah, great, great question, Brian. Uh, you know, the, the real key, I think, is that the, the data gives us the ability to understand customers in much greater detail than we have in the past. You know, and if we do that, we can start to treat them as the individuals that they are and actually tailor our services to better support and be responsive and and really proactive in supporting customers. So I think the data is providing a, a tremendous amount of uh, insight and really helping us move from being what I call customer focused to truly customer centric. Again, the thing to get over is I think a lot of utilities probably think they're customer centric today, but just thinking that you know improving your customer service or making your programs uh, for the average customer really isn't customer centric. You really got to get down to really understand you know, the granular details uh, of every customer. And data science is allowing you to do that today. Great. And Adam, let's jump over to the qual side. Why is it worth the effort to talk to people and hear about their feelings and their thoughts and their experience versus just looking at the data points and, and determining it from that? I think just how you framed it there is exactly why those those things that you mentioned are context. And the context in one individual's life is just their life. And so we need to understand how people think about issues, um, how they interact and engage with their environment or their social networks, why they hold certain beliefs or values and how those came to be. I mean, those are that contextual understanding is really how we understand how we can sort of define and develop solutions that people are going to care about that, that fit into the context of their lives and are seamless and simple and, you know, meet those, those needs and address their sort of core motivations and values. So I think those are the exact reasons why we have to go talk to people, no matter how messy and complex and challenging it is because people are, but that's, I think exactly why we have to go do that. That's great. How do we account for emotion in our research and analysis and consulting and advising and in delivering our, you know, our data science products? Like it, it seems so, so non-quantitative. Like how do you, how do you do that? Asking me or Ted? I'm asking you, Adam. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Uh, we, <laughs> we do that uh, very intentionally. It's a challenging thing to do. So oftentimes you have to, in ethnography and in, in sort of this human-centered approach to market research, you have to tee up sometimes some relatively challenging concepts in very uh, simplistic ways that, you know, people that are not, and, and no knock on anybody that's not in the energy space, but, the, you know, we, we talk about strange things that people don't understand and use weird terms and acronyms all the time. So teeing these things up and then trying to get, say, what's your thoughts on this? What's your reaction to this? Have you experienced something like this? Can you share a time when X happened in relation to this? And how did that make you feel? And so we're, we're being very intentional by teeing people up um, oftentimes with a scenario, let's say, and then saying, how did that scenario make you feel? And what do you wish, you know, for example, what do you wish went better? What could have made it worse? And so we're really intentionally probing and eliciting people's emotional reactions in the moment to things or, you know, trying to recall those and then trying to capture those in a very non-biased way. And, and that's the other really challenging thing with this type of research is being completely unbiased in your analysis and something that we have to be just completely focused on at all times. So, so to maintain, you know, presenting things as they are happening to real people. Um, so it's, it's intentional um, and it's unbiased as best as we can be um, at, at all times. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, hey, Ted, can we just can we just ignore all that and just just work on the data science stuff? Maybe that's better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why Adam spends all that time going out and talking to a couple of people and thinking that represents everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, that's a tough thing to do. Uh, I think there's a lot of value and a lot of um, you can hear a lot, you know, about people in the data. Unfortunately, you know, but you really got to be willing to listen. And uh, the data you have to get at a much more granular level, and companies have to be committed to really understanding their customers in detail. So that's criteria one, and, and going out and talking to them is part of that also, right? Uh, but it's really important to let the data do the talking at a very granular level and be, you might be surprised what's there. Yeah. I, well, I've been in the energy technology space for about 20 years now and not, I've not been in the industry nearly as long as you, Ted, but I will say that working with energy engineers for all these years, it's often blamed on the people element that, oh, if we could just get people out of the loop, we just get them, the people problem out, we could fix this. We could automate, you know, make it autonomous, make these systems just run on themselves, then everything would be fine. So and in that view, machines have won. They they win this debate. So is that is that where we're at? <laughs> you're a true, you, are, you are a true engineer. You're, you're much <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually very early on when I started getting into all of this was why I started moving towards the behavioral side of things and the human element, because that was always so interesting to me in the sense that I, I don't know who said I'm, I'm definitely going to not get this right. But, you know, like folks like Amory Lovins claim to say that we can be like the most efficient society in the world and the most efficient society in the country. Uh, the technology is there, you know, the, we, we can make this happen, but it all hinges on human decisions and behaviors. And so that's where, to me, it seemed like the biggest problem was and the biggest challenge that we have as an industry is to figure out how to effectively engage and motivate people at 
a human to human level because the technology is there. And so that was really what kind of drove me down that path a long time ago. That's fair. And it's interesting that I would have debates with my mentors who were engineers about this, where I felt like I hope that the people can evolve because like we have so many technical problems, like working in technology long enough, you see that every technical system can just break down. There's a million ways they can fail, no matter how well they're engineered. And my other more senior engineering advisors would be like, well, let's hope the technology part we can work out because, you know, people are hopeless. <laughs> like they're not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pessimistic engineer perspective. Yeah. The humans versus machines. It's, it is, a, it's older than the Terminator. I mean, we've been talking about this at least from the 1980s, but I think well beyond, beyond that. Um, so how are we, how are we trying to fix, fix these problems? Like Ted, you're, you're kind of setting the direction and the vision for eSource. Tell us, you know, how we're trying to bring these worlds together so that it's not just people versus machine that we're actually using the data science and using the ethnography together as a, as a more coordinated effort. Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. Uh, you know, so it's a machine or human. And I would say a lot of the solutions, if you use the word and, uh, you actually get to where we need to be. So, uh, you know, what I see coming and I, I think where, where we're really going with eSource is, you know, we, we have the ability to process tremendous amounts of data and get a view of a customer. And we also have the ability to get the human element and really understand the customer in detail. And that and is the most powerful thing that we can bring to the market today. From my point of view, uh, it, it is a game changer for the industry. Um, no surprise that uh, we're at the leading edge. And I expect it to really, uh, you know, make make a really, uh, you know, a, a big difference because, it, you know, there, there is this concept that, you know, machines will automatically make the decision and move forward. Uh, it won't be in my lifetime. You know, there, humans got to be in the middle of it. Uh, you, you have to make good decisions uh, for what's going and how you're going to move forward. And, uh, and there's people on the other end and they're all different. And the great thing now is you can move from what I used to call, I would call customer focused to customer centric, where you really have a deep understanding of each individual customer and you're able to respond to them and offer individual value propositions. And that's where the industry in my mind is going. And uh, the quicker we get there, the better, you know, these old concepts like energy efficiency would deem savings. Uh, I call that an endangered species. Uh, let's hope. That's great. It's <laughs> inspiring. I hope we can get there. I don't want to be a cynic. I'm too young for that still, I think. Well, and in the, in, in the, the customer centric approach, I'm, you know, again, is always a fascinating concept to me. That's, you know, so we, we do ethnographic market research, which we, we've kind of touched on a little bit, the very human oriented research, but then it's kind of, what do you do with that? And, and the customer centric, the human centric approach really is where we have been taking that research is applying human centric design or, design thinking, whichever term you tend to use, I, I use them interchangeably, but really, you know, narrowing in exactly on sort of what people are saying, what you're hearing, the emotions, the values, the contextual uh, insights that you learn from how people engage their environment and trying to develop new, even very rough concepts and ideas around products, services, experiences, programs, you know, that is the, the design thinking approach really is that human centricity and customer centricity is, is 
how you start getting some of those even very early stage ideas out there um, in that, that are focused squarely on human needs, whether met or unmet. And that's where I think we start increasing the likelihood of success with these products is basing them on human needs, oftentimes, uh, which is, I would say, quite different than the historical utility approach, which is, you know, we have to reduce our peak load. So let's design a program and then push it on to customers and hope they participate to help us meet our need. You know, they're very different approaches in that regard. Oh, you're right on. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, that, that's that's so true. It's, uh, there's some falsehoods, so to speak, in the utility business and being regulated that all customers must be treated the same. And, and that's a fallacy. As I always say, if you treat all customers the same, then you're underserving all customers by definition, because all customers aren't the same. So the, the whole point of uh, customer centricity is you're recognizing the differences in customers. And, and that's, you know, that's the gold, right? And then you're able to move that. And then I tell utilities, I go, well, that, we're different though. We're regulated. We have to support everybody. That's why you have a portfolio of products and services and your portfolio should be tailored to specific customers. And I think we're going to, you know, you know, Adam and I have been talking about some, you know, what I call some breakthrough stuff. You know, the industry, if you think of, uh, I'll pick on two customer segments that are really highlighted because of COVID. And uh, that's the small to medium business market, which got adversely affected and the low to moderate income. Uh, the fact that you look at those and they call them a segment is a disservice to, um, you know, those customers, quite frankly. You know, they're going to get a lot of attention. And uh, utility is going to be serious about, you know, let's uh, look at this and see if we can improve our services to them. And, and again, Adam and I have been, you know, chatting on, well, how do, how do we bring this all together? Because we think it's, quite frankly, the combination. We want to understand them in detail on data and get their, understand them as a human and figure out how we, how we collectively as an industry rethink, you know, how we serve them. So it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, Tim, that's, that's, it's interesting that it brings up a, a relevant story that we heard through ethnography a couple of years ago. We did a big study of one of our um, e-design years in the small and mid-sized business sector. And so we went out and talked to customers that own small and mid-sized businesses. And, uh, you know, we, we tried to look at different segments within that or sectors, I guess, within that. And uh, we, we talked to one woman and she was sharing her story. She runs a very boutique jewelry shop. And she was saying, I got no problem with my utility company. You know, they're fine. They keep the lights on. But, you know, they, they came in once and tried to sell me on LEDs for efficiency. You know, they're going to sell them for free. And uh, she's like, the cows are very nice. Again, no problem with them. But those didn't fit the boutique, like, lighting that is completely necessary to sell a product. And she's like, that there offering had no relevancy to me because my business is so unique and we have these unique lighting needs. And she's like, so again, while a nice guy is completely off the mark because he was treating me like every other small business out there when in fact we have very unique needs. So just, a, a, I think a very cool and kind of relevant story to the, the absolute necessity of understanding and recognize that people do are different, whether it's a business or an individual. Um, you can't just broad brush that. Yeah, no, that's, that's right on. Yeah, I, I had one at, uh, at Duke. We were, had a program that was low to moderate income. I was presenting to about 50 top people at Duke, and I had to look in the audience. I started my presentation by going, look, the, the program that we're talking about, it's for none of you sitting in this audience. <laughs> so whether you, no matter what you think about it, it's not relevant. It's irrelevant because it's not you. This is tailored towards a specific customer set. And so I need you, number one, is to whatever you think, 
it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's hard to tell a bunch of executives. <laughs> you know, I, I'm hopeful with significantly increased um, emphasis on diversity, equity, inclusion, and low to moderate income programs and support that we're seeing in the utility industry the last couple of years. I've never seen that before. And, you know, I work, I've been working in electric vehicles, electric transportation for quite a few years. And, you know, one of the things that we've found out early in trying to deliver electric vehicle programs to low to moderate income customers is if you have a bunch of college educated middle income folks designing these programs, they fall on their face. They do not serve the customer because you're not you're not bringing them to the table to actually help make the decisions and design the programs. And, you know, you could waste millions of dollars in the process or, or more. Yeah, and it come, that, that is so true. And it comes back to the, the highest level question at the moment in that regard is just what does equity in electric transportation or electric mobility even mean right now? And we, you know, my colleague Bill LeBlanc and, and myself and you, Brian, and many others have been poking and prodding at this question a lot with many uh, state agencies, utility companies, nonprofits, and, and we don't. I think have a, have an answer yet still. So we're kind of trying to solve the unsolvable without what that even means. And I think that's a, an important place to start is what equity and electric mobility means. Yeah. And, and where the rubber is going to hit the road and all this stuff, right, is, you know, we're, we're going to bring the, you know, the human and the data element together. And it's going to provide some very interesting insights. It's going to be some really tough, you know, really complex and challenging things that we're going to have to, you know, utilities are really going to have to get innovative and creative on how to solve. I'll give you an example that we had in uh, South Carolina when I was with Acova. So we figured out that there was a, a group of customers that, you know, their bills were really abnormal and they spiked. And you, you wouldn't think that South Carolina is also a winter peaking uh, state. And, uh, and then the issue was really it was caused by electric strip heat uh, during the winter in rural areas. And, and again, it's a very small group of customers, but they're pretty easy to identify. But once you identify them, you go, okay, so what are you going to do about it? And uh, and the answer is, you know, we could cut their bill in half and literally $1,200 a year of savings. Uh, and it's and it's putting in a, a heat pump plus a hot water, uh, a heat pump, hot water heater, uh, doing basic, you know, shell stuff. No problem is somebody had to pay for that. Uh, so the nice part about South Carolina, they have on-bill financing, but that's a creative idea in the utility bill. If the regulation moves, you could you can solve that. You can say, here, let's put, uh, we're going to save you 50%. We're going to put 25% of that in your pocket now. And then you're going to pay this over the next five to six years. Then we're going to put the rest of it in your pocket. And so that's what I mean by creative solutions. But it's going to take us as an industry really getting creative to say, okay, how do we solve this? They're, they're all solvable. Uh, it's just a question of the will to how to get it done. Well, Ted, that, that actually brings up a really interesting question, um, you know, and, and tying, tying the whole conversation to, uh, you know, gathering these human insights and identifying very small micro cohorts through data science and, you know, bringing the human voice to that. Um, when you do this, obviously, you have a whole bunch of different solution ideas like you were talking about earlier. There's a portfolio approach and you try to base these on those micro cohort, those human needs. Um, so frequently you hear utility companies or uh, individuals within the utility or executives say, the regulators would never let me do that. 
and, and being a former utility executive yourself, do, how do you approach that situation? I mean, that, that is always like the, just the, you know, bam, that's the wall. So how, how do you go about addressing that? Yeah. The best example I, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, at Duke with Jim Rogers, you know, it was his conviction that energy efficiency was a real resource that needed to be treated like one. And then we should be paid for producing that resource as if we built power plants. And so I was the lead witness on that in five states. And uh, I can tell you when we uh, kicked that off, there was absolutely uh, no one that was with us. I mean, I mean, no one. You think the environmentalists would jump in and they'd be with us and go, hey, isn't this great? We can start to build this up. No one. So it came down to, uh, you know, getting down to energy efficiency as a real resource was uh, we got through that. Uh, without too much difficulty, and then uh, getting paid for it took uh, three and a half years uh, before we finally got it done. Uh, but we got it done. It ended up being a, you know, and again, people can say, well, you shouldn't make money on it. Well, utilities are investor-owned utilities for a reason. And so if you want to make significant change, uh, Duke went from spending tens of millions on efficiency to comply to literally spending over a billion dollars a year. And uh, so the difference is dramatic. And, and Jim Rogers was really clear. He said, uh, look, you, know, you stay with it until uh, we get rulings in all our states. And I don't really care what the ruling is, but we are going to force a ruling. And it, and it takes that kind of leadership uh, to make a difference. And I, and I think there are some really you know, great executives in the utility business right now who are, are going to do something very similar, and they're really ready to take it on. Wonderful insights. Thank you for sharing. But the most critical question to answer, I think, for our listening audience is, how do you pronounce data correctly? <laughs> data? Data? Datum? I believe it's data from, from my Northeast upbringing. Well, I happen to come from the Northeast also, so I think it is data. Oh. <laughs> so I'm the lone California boy here. Data. Well, good. I'm glad we settled that. East Coast, West Coast rival is still alive. Yeah. All right. In closing, what's your final argument, Adam? Do you really think that it's worth <laughs> dealing with dealing with the humans? <laughs> I, I do. Uh, hearkening back to a prior discussion point, it's it's a lot of effort. It is very worth it. You know, people aren't data points in numbers and statistics and uh, you know statistical significance. They're really highly complex humans, and and we need to understand their lives that a much deeper and more granular level to get the degree of context we need to effectively serve them and develop things they're going to be interested in and joining and participating in. And Ted? Yeah, I, I agree. We really need it both. You know, it's not an or, it's an and. And uh, you need to put those uh, two together. And uh, we need, you know, both the, the, the data science to really understand customers in great detail at a, at a granular level. So we understand them as individuals and we need to talk to them. So we understand, uh, you know, the, the human and the emotional side and really can relate to people. Well, thank you guys for, for joining me today. Really appreciate you being on, uh, on the podcast. Now that was Ted Schultz, CEO of eSource and Adam Maxwell, Managing Director of our consulting division. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and give us a like on your favorite podcast app. Also, a reminder that our annual eSource Forum is coming up next month, September 28th to October 1st in downtown Denver and online. As always, eSource members can register for free. We cannot wait to see you in person and online next month. Thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you next time.